0: Fortunately, unfortunately, we have um, a pretty low cost of living in this part of the world, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, all things uh, considered. Which means that, and we also have something else, which is like, it's totally normal for, you know, people to live with their parents until they're 30, right?
1: <laughs> so if you
0: So let's take those two examples, right? <laughs> right, um, very little risk, right? So True. think about it, like a typical person that might be um, a stellar engineer or somebody that's thinking about, you know, that's a creative person that, that's a creator, that's a builder, right, yeah. um, you know, he gets, you know, offered maybe um, to go work at a big company, right? It's the dream that they've been, you know, whether it's Microsoft or, you know, exactly. others, whatever. Yeah, they have this it's,
1: big name in the city. Yeah, whatever, whatever
0: <laughs> you, you replace with in whatever industry that, you know, that, that's true, that um, they've made it, right? So in that, in that storyline, you know, that we've been told, you know, go to school, have good grades, you know, get a job. That today um, is happening, right? And people are, you know, living at home with parents and they're thinking, okay, I need to go get that job in order to have that, you know, financial freedom. And But then they still live with the parents and then after a few years it's so over. So to me, you know, when I think of, um, you know, people that are at Stanford, um, that is a diametrically opposite point of view. Most people that are thinking about starting companies are, and starting, ideating or starting companies at 20, 21, 22. The reason is because you have nothing to lose except your time.
1: Hello Recursive community to our next podcast episode here in Belgrade. Our next guest is helping marketers all over the world have a scalable process for user acquisition, engagement, and storytelling through social media. Sinisha Rakovic is the CEO and the co-founder of Hunch, a marketing technology company focusing on creative intelligence. Sinisha is also a serial entrepreneur with several successful exits behind his back. He graduated from California State University and spent also time at Stanford University. Sinisha, welcome to the Recursive Podcast. I'm very happy that you're here.
0: Yeah, thank you um, for inviting me and super excited to have this chat with you.
1: Yeah, Uh, somehow I feel like uh, you're kind of a colleague because I've been always doing kind of media and marketing for various companies, especially in tech and uh, I see that this is where you thrive right now.
0: Yeah, well, you know, media and tech are uh, you know, a good place to be today. Mm-hmm. Right? The, the convergence of the two are definitely places where lots of innovations happening.
1: I'm going to ask you a bit more about Hunch, but I wanted to go sure. back a bit in time and uh, bring you to the beginning of your entrepreneurial journey. Mm. Um, how did you find the entrepreneurial drive when did you felt like uh, okay this is where I want to go to
0: yeah it's um it was it was a long time ago I think everybody that that comes from this part of the world you know the Eastern Europe Southeast Europe I think we have all been brought up in this you know you know go to school you know get a job and you know work at that job until your career sunsets right and then I had the opportunity to um, you know, move uh, to a different part of the world, which is Southern California. And then you sort of meet different mindsets there and you have different, you know, viewpoints. And so I think part of, you know, the people that I uh, spent time with uh, during my high school and my university time, close friends of mine, all of their families were entrepreneurial families. They all had businesses. And so ultimately, you know, they influenced in how, you know, and basically, had, you know, make myself ask the question, well, if they can be entrepreneurs, right? uh, Why why am I thinking of not being an entrepreneur? So it's one of those things where in your 20s, you're questioning things around in the world and how the world works. And, you know, at that time, it was like, okay, um, there were some specific geo, um, you know, political events happening during that time. And so there was this, you know, opportunity to sort of bridge the gap between, you know, the Balkans to so the Eastern world, Eastern European world with my time there, which was, you know, the Western world with capital and business and markets and so forth. So, you know, naively, as a 20 something year old, you're thinking that you can do anything, right? And so the, the idea was, you know, as I was spending time and I saw this happening with our friends, um, when they were traveling the world and, you know, conquering their sort of, you know, ambitions, um, it was like, okay, why can't we do it? So it was definitely a step out of those, you know, comfort zone it wasn't you know something that was that we were that I personally was you know brought up with Um, but that was the initial trigger which was like hey if they can do it I can do it right and it was like pushing myself to do it
1: that's exactly the message that we would like also to send to maybe younger generations through the podcast so I'm very happy that she's saying exactly how how much time did you spend in the States
0: Um, roughly I want to say from about uh, 16 years or so so the formative years between you know 10 and 26 was full-time and then between 26 and 30 was half the year there and back you know
1: how did you stay connected to the balkans i mean why would you decide to bridge the gap you were yeah. probably also very happy to stay in there it's a it's good there. question
0: <laughs> it's a really good question i don't i don't in particular, have a reason as to what i think it was a sort of a, uh, you know there was something that was missing in my life at that point and it was one of those callings that you know hey um, you know, we, we have a very nice life in Europe. Um, There's nothing missing. So we went to California. We have a very nice life in California. But there was like, you know, you always feel like, you know, that, you know what if I go back? You know, what if, or, or I didn't want my life... California to go on uh, without sort of testing. Like, what if I went back to Europe? Would I be successful? And so that was the initial. The re- the the thing that actually um, the glue that stuck everything together, or you know, the the thing that actually made it work was the fact that I met um, you know the love of my life, which was in Europe. So I came back, and we were going back and forth for years. It was more for fun, but during those fun times, there was also you know thinking like, okay, there's lots of opportunity here, and so that's when you know we sort of um, formed that. So that was, I would say, the you know. Um, the reason of going back. But I think while I was here, you you see all these opportunities, right? Super smart people, you know, super driven people, super intelligent people. And so for me, actually, you know, growing up in Santa California, um, you know, if you have an idea or if you wanted to do something, it's super competitive to build the right team to do it, right? So, you know, part of it, the trigger of going back was, you know, it was easier to find those individuals, you know, that I could build a company with, um, you know, the partners, I think, from a tech side.
2: Mm,
1: very much true. I think, uh, especially when you want to test out an idea, when you want to build like an MVP, it's much um, more opportunistic to do it from here yeah. than you know spend a lot of time and energy and money, capital
0: in yeah, the states. Yeah, so. it still is. I mean, this is back in two thousand five, so this is before you know startup was a thing, right? Before it was actually the it's before Y Combinator became a thing, right? Mm. So it's you know, um, at that time you know I think it wasn't even like when we started the company we called it like a feasibility study (laughs) (laughs) it was not a business plan right Um, so it was one of those things where we didn't know what we were doing but we were building you know essentially what today would be you know a startup environment Um, you
1: know didn't know what you're doing is part of the preconditions you know to build a company otherwise if you if you knew what is following ahead you would never start that in any case what was your first venture
0: um, the first company was called Building Explorer. It was essentially a company that built in the virtual design and construction space. It mm-hmm. still operates today. Got acquired by um, a big sort of you know construction real estate company. Now it's on I don't know 100 projects across the world. Some very you know impressive projects. So that team kept on you know chucking away and building it. But it was a super interesting technology. Again, you had to do with automation and had to do with sort of you know at that time uh, AI wasn't called AI neural networks and so forth about you know how do you automate um or let's say how do you automate the construction process before it gets built you know to see certain things that might go wrong and then you know save costs and be more efficient in your building process it's a very very innovative technology
1: so you were successful already from the first step more or less you know exiting the first company is already very encouraging to continue yeah to i mean journey.
0: it was you know with everything you know everything else constant, every um, project can be viewed as a success, even those that fail, you know? I mean, you you know, success by definition means that, you know, you're learning and you're growing, right? That at least for me is, right? So, um, you know, it's not only materialistic. I always say that, you know, it wasn't, you know, it was a good, um, um, let's say a a good way to learn fast, you know? So that growth curve, the individual growth curve, the team growth curve, for me, the success is you know um, you know working with you know people that are just as dedicated as you uh, that want to grow right that help you grow and in the end you know you think of even when it's a, a smaller success or a bigger success you know what really you look back towards is all the time that you spend in sort of the battle of building something right with the teams with the people and so that's something that you know that I view as success if you have that you're already successful right um, the markets might say how successful you might become in the end right but i think you know at the individual level you know if you strip away you know the, the capital if you strip away everything you know at the individual level you know being successful means that you know you're happy with what you're doing that you're you know that gives you wind in your sails that you're in your what you know somebody calls the zone of genius that you're just constantly growing constantly innovating and you have support in that you know and hopefully something in the end you know might materialize out of that in that, in the, in those terms mm-hmm. we we I, we were fortunate to have all of those um to every, you know, to a certain degree. And that essentially gave us, um, you know, even though like we, you know, we went all in not knowing what we were doing and just sort of building as we, you know, the whole, you know, the perennial, you know, sort of definition of you jump out of an airplane and you have to build that parachute. That's essentially what startups are, right? Sure. And as you're falling, you're building that parachute to have a safer landing. <laughs> um, and so, you know, that gave us, you know, the, the, the little success that we had, for me personally, it gave uh, me the opportunity to say, okay, this is a super interesting way to live a life in terms of um, defining um, you know, problems that you wanna solve, solving those and in that whole journey. So that's the reason why the next company happened was because we knew that it was possible. You know, if you have the right team and if you're all aligned and you want to do something, there's absolutely nothing that can stop you. you know, it just, it's just a matter of time, mm-hmm. how fast you learn, right? so um so that's the reason why i think you know startups are you know an amazing place to be because they're you know they they drive to have this you know, internal inertia for each person it gives you this sort of drive that you know that you, know, you you need to succeed that you need to you know small you know solve a small problem then a bigger problem then a bigger problem you keep going and keep solving problems um, and it's definitely never um you know boring for sure it's never repetitive you're always in a new thing you know you're always solving a new challenge whether it's a smaller team of six people or you know if it's 12 people or if it's now 50 people or 100 people there's different challenges and you're always you always have this feeling of um that you know you haven't solved that challenge before right so that's both good and bad because the 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 good part is it's a new challenge and you know you figure you figure things out of how to solve it and you fail hundreds of times right before you solve it there's definitely battle scars of failure on every entrepreneur, on every CEO, at every level, right? It's just a matter of, you know, how big those scars are. You know, we had a discussion just recently with um, some very, you know, um, you know, CEOs and founders. We were just talking about that. How do you, you know, Uh, maybe circumvent the system of not having those or like you know growing as an organization grows how do you like for example as you scale from 30 people to you know 70 people it's different operations it's different things how do you solve for that well you fail right Um, you fail and you fail fast and you keep growing and you know you you figure things out and then you make it work
1: i think you totally change your perspective on failure this is the one thing that is for sure happening but i wonder i've been talking to Several founders who successfully exited their companies, mm-hmm. maybe not the first, maybe already the second, whatever, what I find interesting is that they never really do a sabbatical afterwards. they never really you know go easy afterwards they don 't go and uh, i don 't know go to the maldives and have a have a, a calm life. Usually, they go back on the battlefield so i 'm wondering. Is there also part of like an addiction to the whole thing? Absolutely,
0: yeah. (laughs) I think it's absolutely. I think that could probably be relatable to you know the military being in battle and somebody that you take somebody out of battle and they have this feeling that you need to go back. You know, I think it's. um, I don't know where I read that or saw that, but um, there's definitely um, you know that there. I you know maybe an addiction is a strong word because it has negative connotations. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't call it that because it's you know positive in a sense. You know, Mm -hmm. Um, but there's definitely you know when yours when you get to certain when you you know let's say you succeed right let's say there's an exit event you know i don't recall any you know like champagne moments you know there's none of that right it's just you know what's the next thing right um and so builders have uh they're wired differently not from the start like you wire yourself to be differently to think of um you know problems and you know drive so i would say yeah i think it's definitely you know once you're done, it's like what's next? You know, it's not once you're done and you're like, okay, now I'm done. And some people find that challenge in different formats, right? Sure. Maybe you know they want to build you know the biggest house or you know they want to build something else, and that's a challenge, right? That's next for them. Or they want to you know go from you know startups towards you know investments, you know, and then that's a challenge, you know. Mm. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's you know being um, an operator, being you know sort of executing. It's different than, you know, maybe the next stage where you may be helping the community. So that's a good question. Like when you talk to your other CEOs, like what's, you know, what's the end game, right? Once you're done, are you constantly building new things or is there a certain point where, you know, you can help, you know, build the ecosystem in a certain way and be more efficient?
1: I think it inevitably comes to this point where you um, feel like there is a certain moment of when you start giving back, when you want to create this, the basis for a systemic success of those around you, uh, you know, for more entrepreneurs to come, mm. for the next entrepreneurs to become even more successful than you are. I think this is at some point coming to the life of, uh, of a successful
0: Yeah, that was that was part of our, you know, that's part of our core mission or DNA um, for all of people involved in the, mm. you know, current company Hunch. You know, everybody to some degree has this, you know. Um, feeling that there needs to be a bridge that needs to be built for the next generation of you know people that are going to be building companies right mm. we almost feel like can okay, we you know it's funny you know it's maybe funny to say but we're, like being the first generation you're not the first generation there's thousands of successful entrepreneurs of you know in this part of the world um obviously but in this format in terms of tech and venture capital there wasn't you know, a hundred success stories, right? Mm. Um, like we don't have, you know, a unicorn and maybe there's one in the region in Romania, right? So like building the sort of, um, you know, that um, a- atmosphere for that to happen is something that, you know, I think we're all committed to. So like in our, you know, um, our partners, including our investors, including our founders, we all have this, you know, drive that is higher than just hunch, right? It's more about, you know building a success story not just for the success of one company it's really to attract for the next 10 to be successful right
1: and it's exactly that so I consider unicorns a bit of like a vanity metric but yeah, it's still true. an important Absolutely. metric because it puts us basically on the global map of you know tech entrepreneurship so we have now one decacorn in between and yeah. then they went uh, like public the UI path yep Guys, in in Romania, we have the Payhawk in Bulgaria. We have in Greece, Vivo Wallets. I think Serbia will be probably coming next uh, with their own unicorn. But this is, I think, the next big question. So we don't want the outlier companies. We actually want, I think, a very good middle class of entrepreneurs, yeah, exactly. like which are going to be like the backbone
0: of yeah. The, and so, like, so how how does that build, right? So we can ask the question, you know, how do you create the infrastructure for that to happen, right? Exactly. There's, you know, the you know a government, you know, can do its job, but ultimately, <laughs> yeah, they, they're, they're doing, <laughs> they of could. course. Um, but the other, um, you know, the other part is like, you know, how do you take all the stories, the micro failures, and how do you, you know, loop them back into the next generation mm. of, um, of successful entrepreneurs, right? And so like, I'll give you an example for today. And I, I don't know about the region. I can only speak locally, you know, in Belgrade. there's a very, you know, small community of, uh, people that you can tap into it 's almost non existent in terms of helping you solve specific challenges at specific really? time, um, like, so even like in the, in the, in the startup community like, let 's look at um, the two extremes right yeah. You walk in San Francisco or you walk in Berlin or you walk in London. The ecosystem you know there you' probably easier for you to meet an angel investor that ha- that was a previous entrepreneur that might you know fund your company with a small ticket investor, but more importantly it 's not the capital. More importantly, it's getting the time of that um, experience of helping you, you know, think and ask the right questions, you know, to solve specific problems and think ahead and so forth. That, in, you know, in this part of the world is almost non-existent, right? So that part of, like, knowledge transfer is very, very low. And I think, you know, um, speaking from my experience, you know, um, obviously there it's not for everybody's, but it's in terms of that um you know, I, I call it CEO therapy sessions,
1: you know? Thank you. Right? <laughs> In terms like of like, you
0: know, having, yes. you know, talking about certain problems, whether it's PC to product building stage, whether it's C stage, whether it's, you know, revenue stage, whether it's, you know, series A stage, there are a thousand and one, a myriad of different problems that pop up and questions. Um, and so building the right mentorship, you know, the right sort of support uh, organizations is really what drives and propels companies forward. And so, I mean, I would say it's such an anomaly for one person to do it himself. It's almost non-existent, right? Um, if you look at every successful, you know, entrepreneur, there's probably somebody that they relied on, they have as a coach. I was
1: just about to ask yeah. You, whether it's who like are a, your mentors over the years,
0: yeah. So it's a good question. Um, <laughs> um, I mean, I, I draw from many different sources, right? I wouldn't say that there's one. Um, you know, I've had you know successful mentors and coaches in the past that were, you know, that maybe didn't think that they were coaches, right? But they were. Um, And so I learned from many different people about many different subjects. But I wouldn't say that I had one, you know, that I can rely on and grow, Um, you know. And that's actually part of, you know, know, every entrepreneur should have uh, a way to, you know, figure out who is that person that they can, you know, rely on for the next stage of growth. So currently, for example, you know, I'm definitely looking for, you know, the right, um, you know, to tap into the right person that can help us go from the current stage we're at towards the next stage. Right. Um, so that's, you know, and part of that comes from the board. So if you have you know, a board, you definitely can fill some of those gaps in, in terms of like helping you. Uh, but operationally, you know, when things are, you know, great, you know, you talk to somebody and, you know, when things are bad, you talk to somebody, you know, when things are challenging. Um, those are the. Um, this is where you know sort of the, the the knowledge transfer happens. This is where you know somebody gets a specific let's call it idea of how you know to change the trajectory of the company or how to you know do certain things. Mm-hmm. Um, so I mean, for me, ultimately, you know, my mentor is my father. That's who I you know grew up with. So that's kind of like the base I would say. But now, in certain business interactions, you try to draw from different people. Um, so I would definitely encourage everybody when they're starting is to have that, you know, I mean, for me, like, you know, having a, sp- a sparring partner in terms of playing chess, you know, my, uh, my co-founder CTO Igor Simovic was somebody that, you know, we went back and forth in the early days, uh, you know, hours on, hours on, hours on end. So that was something that, you know, definitely gives you win in your sales that you know that you have somebody there. And so you triangulate those answers that they're missing, right? Sure. By, um, through, through that process.
1: This is why it's important to have a co-founder, I think. And because you mentioned therapy, I think sometimes it's not even about, you know, um, having the questions and, you know, talking about the practical stuff. Sometimes it's just, you know, being there and being listened to. Yeah. Because you're fucking afraid, you know, of, of doing all these things sometimes. Yeah, I mean, you're, yeah. you're,
0: you're definitely, um, you know, in this part of the world, and particularly in this part of the world, you are you know swimming you know upstream or however you want to say it you're pushing the boulder up the hill right yeah. particularly because think about it you know that entrepreneur mm-hmm. that has an idea that wants to work on something comes home and he doesn't have an ecosystem that's supportive enough to say you know keep chucking at it you know don't worry mm-hmm. keep chucking it. you your work it's probably like are you sure you know like are you sure you i mean
1: that's impossible. You know, it's like, yeah, it's, an, <laughs> you know, why don't you just, you know, there's
0: awesome companies you can work at. And um, <laughs> and so there's, I mean, that we can go into, like, why that is, you know, and wh- why we have that mentality and how that's changing a bit with recent uh, sort of developments. But I think ultimately at the very core, you know, this particular, this, um, you know, area, I think is an ideal place for innovation to happen to take that risk right if you think think about it
1: I definitely think so and I actually wanted to relate to your um, you know connection to entrepreneurship also through, you know the people in the state maybe also the people that you met at Stanford Um, I feel like the entrepreneurial line has been broken In this part of the world, partially because of the communist part that we had in history, because, you know, entrepreneurship wasn't really allowed back then, and, you know, many of them were penalized. So they couldn't build like the next generation of entrepreneurial thinkers. Uh, At the same time, we cannot just, you know, copy paste Silicon Valley model into the Balkans because we live in a totally different context. But what we see here is that due maybe to the economic challenges that we've been experiencing and also the crisis, people became very creative. Like, they really started thinking out of the box because they didn't have the resources. I mean, you have to do a startup and innovation and and a company out of nothing. Yeah, (laughs) How do you do that? Well, you have to be really, really street smart. So I think this is, you know, the and and hungry. And I think these are, you know, the two factors that we still currently have. We are street smart and we are hungry. And... uh, the only thing that's missing is where do we see the glass ceiling, and this is where the ecosystem comes in to show you that it's not here, but it's actually much higher and actually, yeah, there is no yeah, glass ceiling.
0: I, I would I would say yeah i think you're I think you're right, I think your characterization is um, on point um, I would say that people don't dream big enough to your to your point mm-hmm. in terms of like what is possible you yeah. know because they're within their sort of um and that's partly because maybe they you know this region people haven't experienced and traveled and seen mm-hmm. and so forth. If you think of like Berlin, somebody who's in Berlin grew up you know traveling to France, Belgium, Netherlands, and so forth, and they see the multicultural, see lots of different people. You see that opportunity. You see that you know the uh, the ocean is wide and deep. Um, you know here perhaps there's you know that, that maybe there's a box around um, that people are not ex- not not seeing that. Mm-hmm. So I think that that's one um, that's definitely true is. People need to be dream, dreaming big. And the and I um, constantly, you know, and part of that is I mean, maybe they don't see that the dreams do become reality because of success stories. And, and then those that do become success stories are like typically um, tied to some form of connections with somebody who, you know, like you know, the, the old system of being successful, you know, uh, that you have to have certain things to make it work. So those are the remnants of sort of, um, you know, perhaps the things that kill that energy. Yeah. But yeah, I think from from um, from the current when you look at what um, the opportunity is, you know, fortunately, unfortunately, we have um, a pretty low cost of living in this part of the world. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, all things uh, considered, which means that, and we also have something else, which is like it's totally normal for you know people to live with their parents until they're thirty. Right. <laughs> so if you so let's take those two examples, right? <laughs> all right. Um, very little risk, right? So sure. think about it, like a typical person that might be um, a stellar engineer or somebody that's thinking about, you know, that's a creative person, that, that's a creator, that's a builder, right? Yeah. Um, you know, he gets, you know, offered maybe um, to go work at a big company, right? It's the dream that they've been, you know, whether it's Microsoft or, you know, exactly. others, whatever. They have this it's,
1: big name in the city. Yeah, let's, whatever, <laughs> whatever
0: you, you replace with whatever industry, that, you know, that, that's true that um, they've made it, right? So in that in that storyline, you know, that we've been told, you know, go to school, have good grades, you know, get a job, that today um, is happening, right? And people are, you know, living at home with parents and they're thinking, okay, I need to go get that job in order to have that, you know, financial freedom. And But then they still live with the parents and then after a few years, it's so over. So to me, you know, when I think of, um, you know, people that are at Stanford, um, that is a diametrically opposite point of view. Most people that are thinking about starting companies are in, starting, ideating or starting companies at 20, 21, 22. The reason is because you have nothing to lose except your time, right? And so um, if, you, if you take that logic and you say, okay, you know, if somebody starts building ideas and you know, um, let's say not living for a salary, right? But living on the idea of building something, Right. you you consciously have to tell yourself you're not going to have a salary because you have to build, right? Um, Ten years ago, in 2005, you probably wouldn't, you know, it'd be people would look at you like crazy. Um, today, they probably wouldn't look at you crazy. There's, you know, um, there's the ecosystem is building up. There's uh, pre-seed funding, there's seed funding. There's you know mm-hmm. um, uh, ways to you know help your you know story story become true or your what you're building become true but essentially you know if you go through the 20s of building something the the learning curve is just much faster right you oh yeah st- you mm-hmm. just start you l- you learn because you have to right and you yeah and yeah. the thing, the other thing is i think is important you get you get to learn in a, in a broader sort of sense right so when you're building a company there's product so you're t- it's about engineering it's about research it's about building the product but then there's also thinking about customers Mm-hmm. it's also thinking about okay how am i what are my customers how am i going to reach those customers how are the customer is going to make a decision in order to buy right Then there's also finance there's also like okay now i have to build a way to get the you know uh, the revenue in and then there's also okay so there, as an entrepreneur uh, or as a builder um you become sort of the master of your universe you have to you have to know a little bit of everything to everything, begin with yeah. okay. you know and so that's I think what uh, a lot of people um, what turns on a lot of people is the fact that they can build themselves as individuals in all these different you know facets versus if you take the extreme example of somebody just coming in and you know being a coder for one part of you know and doing that for three years they're still only good at that one thing they ha- they don't know how that connects to the world.
1: I guess in you know, a in a good company, also in a startup company, at some point you would need both types of people. So you would know the you would need like the multi potentialites who know a little of everything, but you also have the people who are very good experts in what they're doing. Uh, still, what I'm thinking, and or maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I have the impression that in our parts of the world, the tradition of marketing and you know go to market is actually there is no tradition like that we lack a bit of the knowledge unlike let's say people in the states who are so good at presenting themselves so good at selling themselves that even on the idea they could get um already the first customers and the first investors and so on and so forth and we are much more focusing on building very good products uh on the engineering part but then we kind of like suck at selling them and bringing them to the market and this is where you step in also so i would yeah yeah, well do you feel the same way or is
0: oh so yeah i think um you know i think you know broad generalizations obviously are incorrect but i would say um let me be the you know sort of contrarian or you know devil's advocate to your statement i i over you know i agree with what you said um, the, you know we are engineering product driven, and that's how we see that we will succeed. But that's also true for most of you know Europe and most of the US. The reason um, we have, you know, a thought or we we believe that they're different is because we hear about their successes, right? Okay. So for every success, right, there's a thousand failures, mm-hmm. and those ta- thousand failures are not because the product wasn't built. A thousand failures are because the product didn't find its market, for sure. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> so if you think about that, right, and there's, if it, let's say, if in Bulgaria, Serbia, and Romania, there's maybe a hundred startups right now that are actively doing. Maybe there's a thousand, but uh, like funded. In you know, a two-mile radius or two-kilometer radius in San Francisco, there's maybe ten thousand, right, mm-hmm. of those same companies in the same stage. Mm-hmm. So you know, the law of these numbers tell you that you know, they're failing. They're also failing for the similar reasons that, you know, companies here fail because maybe they built a product that nobody wants to buy, right? Except we only hear of the successes. You don't hear the failures, right? What I mean me as in like from the media, yeah. right? Because nobody wants to, you know, in TechCrunch you don't see those nine thousand nine hundred ninety-nine who failed. should be seeing You, those you only actually. see one who's like super <laughs> successful. So, yeah. um, so I'm playing devil's advocate saying that, yeah, I think in both camps, whether it's Belgrade, whether it's Sofia, whether it's, Bucharest or San Francisco, you have companies that are focusing on product that are not you know growing and building because they're only focusing on product so I agree with your statement that you know the other side is lacking to some degree like the knowledge of you know go to market in terms of marketing in terms of you know i think is is lacking as as maybe a discipline that hasn't been you know uh, thought in schools or there's very little sort of you know like if there's a gaming company let's take that for example uh, a gaming like as an apps you know mm. there's probably maybe like a handful of people that know how to spend a hundred thousand dollars per month to acquire customers right because the budgets are super low in this part of the world right They might be like five thousand per month ten thousand per month that's a different ballgame than somebody spending a hundred thousand or five hundred thousand per month in user acquisition so um you know one feeds the next right so I would say um, so yeah I think you know for this um, for the companies in this part of the world you know marrying the two product but then if you look at UiPath, right that defies your statement in terms of they chucked away for seven eight years before you know they were super successful and for seven eight years nobody knew about them And all of a sudden boom they're a unicorn right (laughs) so like i don't think that you know they 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 got to a point that were i don't know the whole story but i'm pretty sure that they were you know growing slowly they were successful to some degree and at some point you know they went all out and then you say oh yeah they found a product they did good job in marketing probably not but they were probably the best product in the world in terms of automation so um so yeah i think i think it's both i think it's both in terms of you know maybe a little too much focus on on product and not uh early enough focus on talking to customers because that's hard Right? Um, and the second thing is, you know, for most tech startups, the customers, which naturally locally, right? So if you're, let's say building, um, I don't know, um, let's call it, you know, let's call it you're building Hunch in Belgrade, Serbia. There's very little end customers that understand or have a need for Hunch locally, because we're built for large advertisers that, you know, operate globally and so forth. And we help them in terms of be more successful with, getting enough images and videos so they can you know get better revenues and so forth so if we ask if we in that term go through the product marketing or you talk to customers you learn to sort of influence your product and so forth they might give you bad advice so it's like a you know catch-22 um situation in in, in, in that in those terms so i would say yeah i think marketing is the marketing discipline in general from a tech growth marketing perspective is deficient in in these these parts of the world in terms of the
1: <clears throat> what can we learn actually from uh, companies that didn't find their market about go to market strategies which are successfully built why are so many companies failing because they cannot find their market
0: no yeah, i mean i don't know i don't have an answer to that but i would say it's probably because they're not they're not getting outside of their office mm. right they're they're building in their you know cave,
1: yeah
0: that's it you know if you if you talk to customers and this is incidentally the you know sort of the growth story for hunch. We started with one um it's called a thesis mm-hmm. right, and we proved that thesis it was successful, it had to do with data science and slack and this is before ChatGPT, GPT in terms of like natural language processing, and it was we had some early customers right. But no, I mean, those customers, you would need like millions in order for that to be successful. So when we talked to, when we had, you know, our customer development chats, they tell you what they want, what what their problems are. And Mm -hmm. if you're in tune with those problems, you build to those problems and you grow, right? Um, You say, hey, now I have that. So I I think in particular, we had a customer in Argentina that said, oh, we need, you know, easier way to make images or easier way to make videos. And then Igor, our CTO is like, all right, now we have a direction, right? so yeah, I think I mean there's probably you know a million reasons why um, you know a startup can fail, but the biggest one is just you know building a product that nobody wants to buy.
1: Exactly, <laughs> this Did is you? why I'm asking you <laughs> yeah. about this one. Yeah. <laughs> okay, well, <clears throat> tell me what is creative intelligence? I love the term.
0: Yeah, so it's a broader <laughs> term. Um, there's different ways of saying it. Um, Hunch operates in this space of, you know, what we what we've identified as you know the biggest need over the next you know stage of you know marketer's life is there's not enough creatives and that's primarily driven by you know pattern usages of social if you think of mm-hmm. like you know let's if you look at the old way of doing things like um you know 50 years from uh, 50 years ago they would have one tv ad that would run for three months or six months right so you have a process of creating one tv ad you put it on tv and it lasts for six months and it's happy. and then after six months you see hey we have more sales right? That was the old way of thinking. Um, And then, you know, sort of, you know, the channel and the communication strategies changed. So it wasn't one to the masses, it's going one to one, right? So now on social, you are um, like from Facebook or Instagram or TikTok or any other ones, you know, your patterns, if you think of like thumbs are super fast, Right, so essentially you're swiping through content. There's more content creators than there ever were before. There's more products online than there ever were before. So we're constantly being offered certain things. And so what happens is your brain is you know sort of different now. You have, you know, it's your brain is actually super fast. In other words, how fast you make a decision.
1: And your uh, ad blockers are actually very good. Yeah,
0: <laughs> exactly. So you, if you have that up, um, but essentially we've been trained to, you know, to 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 um, to flip through content, you know, in a certain fashion that's super fast. So what that essentially means is, that imagine that that if we take the, the the old video from fifty years ago and we put it on social, you and somebody would just pass through it, and there's maybe sixty seconds of worth of that video that was five million invested. So what's happening now is um, that pattern is sort of driving marketing departments that they need more content in shorter snippets for that are, that are more contextualized to you as an individual mm-hmm. so that you know you have less than two seconds to grab somebody's attention and so what's happening now uh the creative the, the life of the image or the video is shorter shorter in essence in and so what's driving um lots of brands is they have to produce you know thousands of images and videos in order to be competitive today there's you know creative fatigue and all these things um so what hunch essentially solves for it helps that you know marketer you know um produce enough or we enable them to produce enough images and videos that are you know testing different things that allows them to get you know better responses and in the end you know better customers right and so um to your earlier point you know marketing is different today than it was yet you know yesterday and it's changing mm. right if you look at TikTok, it's a video first environment right it's like you have to produce video how many people do you know that can actually produce video like you know that they were born with you know video editing capabilities so that's what brands are asking. It's like, okay, how can they change their internal processes to compete today? So, creative intelligence is just one term. It's creative automation. It's you know, creative uh, performance. It's scaling the creative. Mm-hmm. You know, creative intelligence. You mentioned one. I think on our website we have three or four. Um, but essentially, it's all revolving around the creative because the way um, the platforms are developing—Facebook, Instagram, Snap, TikTok, and so forth there's less um, what they would call you know, options to target or what we would call signaling headwind. In other words, um, you know, with iOS 14, 15 updates, there's less of audience sort of targeting, which means that their AI is super strong in figuring out who's in the market for a specific product. And so the only lever, the strongest lever, and the only lever that um, brands can pull is the creative side is how can they be creative to you know tell that story and you know to essentially um, bring that customer in and so that's what we help or it's how do we you know uh, enable them to be more creative without you know relying on you know hundreds of people
1: Mm -hmm. okay and uh, when we speak about being creative do you think that we can now, also, automate part of that with uh, all the AI? Yeah, Maybe so that's that a
0: good question. Up. I think that's definitely, you know.
1: Is it realistic? And can it be used well, also for marketing?
0: Yeah, I think, you know, from, you know, artificial intelligence will definitely be a, a, an enhancer to, um, you know, marketers for sure. Mm-hmm. It's just a matter of how you use it. Um, you know, we have our own, you know, we're building our own, let's say, Thoughts on how to enable marketers to leverage models to be um, learning models or you know AI to be more effective with their creative, for sure. You know, so I think there's that's inevitable. You know, it's a new category that's forming, generative AI in general, yes. um, and creative is one in terms of image and video. How that will play out, how that will be, I think. I don't think it will ever replace you know marketers for sure. I think it will just enhance you know, and I'll. Make it easier for that marketer to tell that story in you know in a way that he wants to tell it. there's definitely the production it's called the manufacturing of creative is a process that is costly, mm-hmm. it's time consuming and involves you know tens of different parties or entities in order to make that. so that's a cumbersome process. And I think um, there's opportunities in that process for AI to definitely make that um, smoother, easier faster, you know, just basically shorten the latency between when you send out a video or an image when you create it to what's working, what's not working, right? Mm -hmm. So that's, you know, that will definitely become shorter and shorter and it will be in tune with the audience. Um, And so, you know, for us, you know, we're definitely bullish on uh, generative AI over the next years, you know, as an organization, we are building for, you know, the ability for marketers to leverage this. You know, the idea is there are certain models and there's your brand, like what you know about your customers, um, you know about the products and how do you sort of combine the two, you know, to be more efficient. So, Hunch actually incidentally sits in a very nice position in that market because, you know, when you have, you know, generative AI, let's say, and then you have actual, you know, let's call it, um, does it work or does it bring in revenues? Hunch is built out of the infrastructure for launching the creative, seeing if it works, Right. And then if it's what, if it works, means that it's you know bringing in users or customers, and it's you know um, bringing in revenue. So we've built that infrastructure, so we're you know now are in a position to leverage, you know, let's say hundreds of different ideas of a background to a video for a product. Mm-hmm. You know, so I think you know we're in a good position to leverage that. We've started to explore um, those op- opportunities. Um, so yeah, I would say like anything else, I think um, in every part AI will enhance. Um, the knowledge worker I don't think it will replace the knowledge worker Um, and also
1: the creative worker because it's a different type of intelligence yeah
0: yeah, we'll (laughs) see I think um, without creatives it's going to be hard but yeah
1: Because you're so much more focused on social media, I wanted to ask you maybe like a dumb question, but I see that uh, being discussed again and again in startup companies that we work with, also in our own company. You know, the old KPIs that we would be looking at, you know, when it comes to conversion is always kind of like around traffic, how much traffic do we have on the website? And what we see right now is that you can actually have a very great brand awareness campaign, but also selling campaign only on social media mm-hmm. so what happens with the good old-fashioned website and does it still count like what KPRs are we going to be looking at in the future when we want to get a sense of is our marketing well spent or not
0: <laughs> yeah um, and that comes in different flavors right um, mm-hmm. you know for different companies mm-hmm. like for a gaming company we don't have any you know big gaming company as clients but you know we, we know how they operate it's like you might bring in a user who might download the app, right? Maybe he'll purchase something and maybe you get a thousand of these users. But then like, you know, you might acquire, you know, a user that, you know, um, that in the end has a longer lifetime value in terms of purchases. So you want to be optimizing your marketing to those guys that have higher lifetime value and actually maybe avoid these guys. So, um, you know, not knowing what your internal KPIs are, but obviously, you know, um, attention is one you know, let's call it currency, right? With, with mm. which we're all sort of um, like we're giving attention to um, the specific app or to specific. So how, that mon- how you monetize that attention, um, it's up to the business, right? Mm. But I would say from, you know, the perspective of um, like a media company, right? Mm. Um, I think it's, you know, looking at metrics um, and fine tuning, you know, for those actions That ultimately helps you, you know, improve your bottom line, whatever that may be. Mm. So that's your KPIs. But the thing that, you know, technology does, it allows you to sort of have those levers to check the signals whether or not that, you know, um, is true, whether it's impacting your bottom line or not. So I think, um, Mm. I mean, a a good example of that is yellow journalism, Mm. right? Think about it. Mm. Yellow journalism has just been optimizing for, you know, what, for... (sighs) stories that are sensational, exactly. right? To bring in a reader for, you know, is that necessarily good? I think that's actually more damaging than, you know, good. Is. Yeah, so I think, um, and there's a plenty of these, you know, so I think, you know, I don't, I'm not an expert on, on publishing or mm. how, but I would say, you know, it's definitely changing the way, um, you know, uh, social has definitely impacted the way media companies operate today
1: oh yeah definitely um so i wanted to ask you about the other big shift that we are currently seeing from one generation to the next one like consumers have now or consumers from the millennial generation and the consumers from the gen z generation they're going to have a totally different mindset of how they consume content how content makes them purchase certain things what Mm. have you learned about this one because you've been a meta Partner, yeah,
0: meta business but partner. But you speak
1: also a lot about TikTok, and actually both exist because there are different generations <laughs> who yeah. are using the platforms. So what can we learn about?
0: Gen- it's a good question. I don't know. I don't. I'm not an expert on <clears throat> on that. But I would, you know, I can I can say from my uh, vantage point um, that impulsiveness is definitely higher with the uh, you know with younger people, younger generation. So I don't know. I don't know. I wouldn't. Be able to give you a smart answer. Okay. You know, um, you know, comparing the two, I think what's true is that um, the biggest difference I think in that pattern usage is the fact that we have now algorithms that people are aware of, and I'll give you an example. Um, when I speak to my son, right, mm-hmm. I already have the conversation of how to train the algorithm to give him content that he should be looking at. How old is he? Yeah, he's 12. Right. Okay. Um, and so we had this discussion earlier on when, you know, for example, TikTok came about into, you know, um, in the classroom, let's call it, and we had, a, you know, a, 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 an honest heart-to-heart in terms of like, how does it work, right? So I think, I mean, this is just my bias, right? But I think, um, you know, I think people are aware, uh, and that they're that they're innately training the algorithm. So if that changes their, you know, purchasing behavior, um, I think it will. I think it, you know, I think they're now aware. Of how they're interacting with the platforms, and I think you know those brands that understand that, you know, will have a better position, you know, to carve out a niche for those customers. Right. So if they understand that specific individuals want specific things, um, if they're building for contextualization, right. So in that example, when you're teaching the algorithm, um, perhaps you want to see only certain style of creative. So we go back to the creative, right? Maybe let's say skaters, for example, Okay. right? So let's go through an example of a company that sells shoes to its audience. Um, if it sells shoes to a skater population, it should make that contextual, right? It should meet the content that's for the skater population. They love watching skater videos, they love skater gear, they love skater sort of angles. That shoe should be appeared in that specific, you know, mm-hmm. creative, right? Mm-hmm. Versus, let's say just a <laughs> broader, you know, creative, that's one shoe and it just, it's on brand and it's, you know, just one shoe and like a one influencer. So, um, that speaks volume to how brands will be changing in the future because they'll have to build, um, you know, storylines for many different parts of the audience. Um, and ultimately that to go back to your question between the generations, I think that's the difference is people want People, I think, I don't know, maybe, maybe that's just me, but I think people want um, to have that experience where you know they already know that they're sharing data. Like for example, I think everybody that's younger, they're they're okay with sharing data. For example, right? So.
1: I think this is the most frustrating part because uh, in a way, we as users are being asked for our data all the time and then you see you a know, marketer is not using it in exactly. the right way. And it's super, I mean, why would you send I this? Mean, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Why is it so yeah. fucking generic? So
0: I, say, so I would say like, to, to say like, um, I always use the example I say, you know, I, I have three boys. And so I say, I want to be the dad of the year, right? But I don't have time to research all the great things that I should be doing with my sons. So if I had a company, and this is uh if any company out there targets fathers with three boys with activities, you know, please (laughs) turn on your ads, you know, how can I have experiences, you know, like hiking, this and that, you know, that's targeting me. And I I always look at that as I, I invite that, right? I would want somebody to offer me certain things to make it easier because, you know, for me to go to Google and search and... Now, through you know, flip through a thousand different pieces of content, most of them are bullshit to find the things that you want, right? Mm. Um, That's a pain, right? So, so I think, um, you know, that's part of what what Hunch's mission is it's to enable that, is to enable that, you know, that, you know, giving, um, you know, those individuals that are in the market for something, you know, an easier, faster way and helping brands, you know, um, with that.
1: Yeah, customer-centric. Actually, I mean, yeah, we, we speak is. about it for so long, but it exactly. Is, we it's still you know, it's creating that. those
0: experiences you know <laughs> customers want. I look at myself. I, I when I go to you know a platform, I want the platform you know, to offer me things that are of interest to me, not mm. those that are not of interest to me. That's yeah. just my personal um, stance.
1: I get it. So you think that we are at this point already okay with uh, lacking data pri- pri- uh, privacy?
0: <laughs> yeah, I think that's a big topic, obviously. Um, you know, I wouldn't say that I think there's definitely, you know, data privacy is, you know, should be um dear to every company and making sure that the data stays um where it's supposed to stay, you know. Mm-hmm. But I think the way companies use that data can be beneficial, right? So okay. I don't know what the you know the next generation is gonna be like. I mean to look at just the current generation that's in my house, you know? Mm. And I say, like, I don't think that they're very aware, at least now. Uh, maybe they will be when they're older. But I think it's like they believe, you know, in the good of the world, and, you know, they'll share everything. And it's one of those things, like, they they were born when, you know, Google was already here, right? So it's like mm. it's totally normal, um they were born when, you know, all these platforms are there. Do
1: you teach them in some way media literacy? Do you somehow restrain their behavior on, I don't know, social media, on TikTok? Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah? Like,
0: they're not, they don't have, you know, none, none of them have phones. Okay. You know, they don't, they're, we have a very strict policy in terms of that. Um, what? And when we do, it's it's more active in terms of conversations. I mean, there's definitely, some, you know, you can't win in all battles. But you know we try to practice, you know, and, and limit in exposure, um, at least for the younger ones, right? The older ones are actually—he's not that. Like he doesn't even have a phone. Um, so I would say, you know. But yeah, like you can't, you know, you can't. Um, in today's world, when you know, you can't really create a black sheet because everybody is sharing information. I mean, in terms of like certain things and um, like if they if. If the whole classroom, you know, knows who that one guy is who's like a YouTuber or something. You know what I mean? Like, how do you, you know, you, you want to make sure that so there's this, like, constant battle, I think.
1: But still, you know, for you as someone who pretty much understands how algorithms are working, would you share, like, what are your concerns uh, when you try to kind of, you know, teach your kids of how to use social media in a responsive way? Responsible way. Well,
0: absolutely. I think there's, you always have to have those conversations in everything, right? Yeah. Um, including social media. And we, like I mentioned before, I think we have those conversations around how, uh, how that thing works. Mm-hmm. And we went through an exercise. It was like, hey, yeah, okay. So, you know, like we were on TikTok. I was like, okay, look, now I'm going to stop on this video. Um, you know, it's like a dog video and I'm going to watch the whole video and let's see what happens. And then the next four videos are like, you know, dog videos or something. And then we stop on something else. And like, so you you see them, you know, see the they're not stupid. They understand at that level. They understand. Um, Yeah. And then there's, you know, there's always dangers and you always talk to, you know, so you think um, they have to be literate and, you know, they have to understand. I I don't think that, you know. To just to shield them and protect them and not have a conversation with them, I think that's doing them a disservice to a certain degree. Mm-hmm. You have to have a conversation with them about everything. Um, and that's true for social as well.
1: Yeah, of course. Yeah, when we were growing up, we had a different conversations with our parents. This is just like one that is coming now on top, yeah, I think. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's very, very interesting. Um, I wanted to maybe finish up a bit with uh, exactly this responsible responsibility that we as entrepreneurs, Tend to take on on ourselves, um, we spoke about the ecosystem we spoke about also AI. I wonder now, do we as entrepreneurs and also innovators have a bigger role to play in the society in your opinion as those who are building you know the next components of the future. How do you see that? How do you think about that?
0: I think absolutely I think you know um, build build the future that you want right and that's part of um every entrepreneur's dream right is to create something to better um society as a whole i don't mm-hmm. think there's any uh, entrepreneur out there building something mm-hmm. that can that can have a net negative impact impact on on you know on the society i mean everybody has their own view of what you know how to make an impact but
1: do you trust for instance mark Zuckerberg when he says that about himself I mean in he's has been in a lot of controversy and I think at some point he was even on some list like the most hated entrepreneur or tech founder yeah yeah
0: yeah I would say look I think you know there's (laughs) there's so much information out there and there's so much disinformation out there Um, I take the stance almost like a stoic would right so I would say from my vantage point I don't judge you know I look at in general, um, you know, how that reflects. And, you know, people have a decision, you know, to use a product or not to use a product. Overwhelmingly, I think, you know, people have spoken whether or not the product works for them or not, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, to say that, you know, to i you know, for, um, we're so far from, you know, um, that level of influence that, You know, what I think really doesn't matter, right? I think, you know, for us, we believe in how to make a better um, experience on these platforms, right? Um, And I think the people will say whether an experience is bad by being on the platform or not being on the platform, right? So I think, you know, from our perspective, what others say is less important, I think, right? Because there's different reasons of why people say things. You know, so that's what I've always thought is, you know, um, I don't know why people are saying that. You know, I, I can guarantee you, if, if Mark Zuckerberg were sitting here, we would all believe that he's a nice person, right? Mm-hmm. And we would all believe that he has good intentions in the world, mm-hmm. right? So I don't know, you know, what, why people write the things that they write and neither, you know, do I care, but I look at the data and I say, okay, the data shows that Meta's growing right and particularly the last quarter so to me that means that they're doing something right right that they're definitely listening to the customers and you know improving and so forth like everything else anything you build is not ideal it's not perfect you, you know you keep a pulse on how to how to improve mm-hmm. um you know by far of all of the platforms out there today meta is the largest you know facebook instagram you know so um, both in terms of from an advertiser perspective Mm-hmm. it's probably the most important you know, network to be on in terms of social. You know, there's Google and there's Facebook in terms of advertising. Um, and you know, when you look at, I don't know what the exact numbers are, um, but it's somewhere like you know, out of every um, dollar on advertising on social, Meta takes, you know, let's say, 90 cents of that dollar. Roughly, maybe eighty-five cents. I don't know. That's
1: impressive. So it
0: basically Mm -hmm. tells you, right, that the brands believe that that's an important network to be on. They believe that their customers are there. They believe that the customers enjoy that platform, right? So, you know, if you follow the data, the data tells a different story than what the narrative uh, that we might be served tells, right? Um, If it was the way it's portrayed, I think it would be a much more dire and significant change than what it is today.
1: Uh, just smile smile because we used to say follow the money now actually today we would rather say really follow the data
0: <laughs> yeah well, yeah in this case it's both true for both you're following the money and the data in terms of what exactly. brands believe right? I
1: found it funny so if you were a female founder I would mm-hmm. probably ask you about you how do you combine uh, a family with three kids and you know being a founder (laughs) but we never asked that man so can I actually do the experiment like how is it for you to be a male founder with three kids at home
0: (laughs) yeah it's um, it's definitely you know enriching in terms of the context switching right Mm -hmm. because when you're building a company there's a thousand things that you're thinking about so you know um, coming home and having that context, switch, actually, in the end, um, your brain takes a break from all the other things, mm-hmm. right? And I know that from my previous company, where you know it was you know constantly, you're twenty four seven thinking about something. So I think it's um, from that perspective, from a selfishly perspective of how it improves me. You know, I think it's definitely God given to have you know uh, three kids at home. Um, but how you know that impacts? You know, I think having You know my wife is absolutely you know the backbone of that organization let's put it Mm -hmm. that way so to me you know it's without you know support without somebody leading that you know she is the ceo you know she Mm -hmm. handles everything so Mm -hmm. to me you know it would it would be unfair you know to think of that as like you know a success story like a founder with three kids um you know it's ultimately You know, for me, when I look at, um, you know, the family, the thing that I really need to improve on, I think every founder does that, is how do you schedule your calendar in a way, right? And that's the ultimate question, you know, when you say, how do you, that's the trickiest part, I think, by having, you know, three kids at home. It's how do you schedule time individually, collectively, and be, you know, mindful of that. You know, that's what I would say is the biggest challenge for me personally. Mm-hmm. Is how do you do that? Because I'm, you know, constantly thinking about the company. I'm constantly thinking about things, um, and it just eats your calendar. But you have to, like, you know, and this is, goes back again to, let's say, that earlier question, which is like mentorship and coaching and so forth, mm-hmm. right? Like, I didn't have that, right? So, like, now you're always in, in that example thinking about how do you. Um, come up with a system, right? Ideally, you would want somebody to say, no, 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 look, here's what the system is, right? exactly. and just follow it. So you have to think <laughs> of a system, you know, ask ChatGPT about, hey, how do you do that, right? So, um, so I think, you know, it's challenging, um, it's definitely rewarding, you know, it's definitely rewarding, but most importantly, it's possible. You know, I think to the, the message that you wanna take away from this conversation to anybody who's listening about um, starting a company, that both are, you know, mutually in- inclusive. They're, they don't have to be exclusive, right? Properly um, defined and properly organized, um, you can definitely be successful, right? Um, in building think, a company and and having a strong family.
1: Do you think that we came to a point where we need to maybe say goodbye to this, you know, hustling culture, like where you're always busy and?
0: Uh... Yeah, I don't, I've never understood the hustling, busy culture. Um, as as a term that's defined, you know, it's, um, it's just a way of being for a lot of people. You know, like mm-hmm. maybe just another thing where people have like, you know, defined it in order to like see what it is. But ultimately, you have, you know, like I can I can look at our our you know company Hunch, and I know that there's individuals that wouldn't define themselves as hustling and always on. They they would define themselves as passionate about what they're doing. Mm-hmm. You know, and when you think about it. You know, there's this great book um, or great, you know, uh, mockery method. Uh, somebody who wrote the great CEO Within, and he describes these sort of, um, you know, four zones, if you will, right. And there's this, you know, zone of incompetence, zone of competence, zone of excellence, and zone of genius. And so, and I really, really found myself in that. When you are in your zone of genius, right, you're essentially working on something, and time flies, and you don't absolutely know how it flew, but you were in your zone of genius and it gave you energy. When you're you're in your zone of competence uh, or in zone your excellence, right? It's something that you're really good at um, and it sometimes gives you energy, sometimes takes away energy. It's something that in your organization, you're probably the best at doing. You get asked to do it or you wanna do it, but it's not something that like really gives you that because you've done it maybe a thousand times or so forth, right? Then there's a zone. So that's, I would say like a neutral for me, sometimes gives you energy, sometimes takes away the energy or drains you depending on the situation. And there's zone of competence where like you know it you're not the best that's definitely energy draining right it's definitely um it's something that takes more energy to complete it's you know it's something that you have to think of and then there's zone of incompetence like for example something that as you're building an organization you know maybe like hr or legal or finance stuff that's energy draining um those are the things that are um things that you know so when you talk about hustle right like if you define properly what that means if you're in your zone of genius, you're essentially not hustling, right? You're so, you're essentially enjoying yourself doing what you want to do, right? You're actually like, if it's product and ideation, if you're coding, or maybe an architect that's building a building, you know, you spent hours of building that building and you hours have gone by, you're not hustling, right? So um, I have a problem with that, you know, specific sort of nomenclature, but um, if you define that within those four terms that mockery, um, you know, define, you know, I would say, um, that in operating in those, you want to be in that zone of genius. This is where you you're flourishing. This is where you're actually giving your driven and all the other ones. You want to find ways to either find somebody else whose zone of genius. That is. Yeah. And then you don't have that problem with hustle. You don't have that problem with like, you know, doing all these things.
1: Thank you. I feel so lucky because I actually get my mentors from the podcast that I'm doing. And I think you just gave me like a direction where I would say, okay, this is what I want to achieve in my calendar. At least there you go. I don't have the three kids yet, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but yeah. I would like to spend a bit more time in the zone of genius. Thank you so much.
0: Absolutely, it was great pleasure having this conversation. Thank you for inviting me.
1: Next on the Recursive Podcast, the co-founder and board member at Scale
2: Focus, Viktor Bilansky. I don't think there will be ever situation in time where you know we or every business should say you know we've done it. Mm-hmm because there is always competition and you know we, companies are always getting better and better mm-hmm. and if you stop then someone else will take your chair mm-hmm. and then you need to catch up sure. so it's a, it's a never it's a never ending game actually the the companies are i would say Ev- like in nature, there is evolution, right? Mm-hmm. The same things are is with, with business. Some companies die, some companies grow. There are new companies popping up like every day. It's never ending story. Mm-hmm. So I, I wouldn't say there is a point of time or let's say milestone achieving which you can say, you know, we, we, we've done it.
1: And if you're just as passionate about innovation as we are, Hit subscribe for the Recursive Podcast on your YouTube or
0: your favorite podcast platform. We're everywhere.